Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I am Eki Tepsapornchai. Well, uh, brother, it's good to be with you again. This is our first podcast of the new year. Uh, we're recording it on the 4th, and so it'll go out in the next day or two here. It's good to see you. It's good to see you, too. And it's a reminder that the very first podcast we did together was actually in response to the quote-unquote uh, quote unquote insurrection of January 6th. Um, so it's been almost a full year since we first did our podcast. At that time, I was not an official part of the podcast. I was there as a guest, and it was about two months later that we decided to make that official. Yeah, you've got a good memory. I, I hadn't rec- uh, realized that. Yeah, I do remember we did a couple together, and uh, after the first one, uh, my wife came and said, you guys worked really good together. You should have them on again. And so um, from from that point on, I, I thought, <laughs> you know, let's just see if I can rope you in. And so I think it's worked out really well. We've got a lot of good feedback uh, people have been edified, and uh, that, that's the whole point of this, right? That the body of Christ is edified, that maybe we can help bring some clarity to various issues. Uh, if it weren't for those things, then uh, it wouldn't even be any reason to do this, in my opinion. So, it's been good, I think. Amen. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. I've enjoyed this. And I've uh, similarly received a lot of uh, good feedback. We've seen it uh, certainly from Twitter. I've seen it from people who are local um, around my church and and uh, even my wife has uh, benefited from these as well. Well, speaking of bringing clarity uh, to issues, let's just jump right in because we've got another one. It, to be honest, it's a topic that I have kind of thought um, has been resolved. It's not um, as much of an issue uh, as it turns out. I, I was wrong. Uh, and that's the topic of inerrancy. Um, I, I think if, if you were to ask me today what the biggest attack on Scripture is, I would say it's the f- sufficiency of Scripture, and I think that's true, but, um, right. it, it, you know, if you attack the sufficiency of Scripture, um, it, it's understandable that many of those same people would also deny the inerrancy of Scripture. And so, really, I guess these things, the authority, the inerrancy, the sufficiency really go hand in hand. It's kind of hard to attack one without attacking the other. Yeah, there, is, there are three legs that I always point to um, that I know you would agree with. It's the inerrancy, it's the sufficiency, and, and it's also the authority. They don't mean the exact same things, but they are often interconnected. If you take one out, you start to impact uh, the other. And so, I agree with you. Um, we're seeing a lot of um, the same kinds of people that would attack the sufficiency are also the same kinds of people that attack the um, inerrancy as well. And by inerrancy, um, what we mean is that the scriptures are without error. Um, they they are perfect. Uh, we understand that translations um, come as a result of, of man, and so translations may not be perfect. Um, but we are dealing with um, with a perfect word um, when when uh, we deal with the, the the source material. Yeah, and that's a that's a good thing to say, and we'll kind of talk about that, right? We're talking about the fact that the original manuscripts contain no error. Um, now, there's a bunch of questions and objections that will come up immediately after that, and I think we'll touch. Uh, We'll, we'll touch base on, on those things as we go along. But um, what, why are we even doing this podcast? Uh, does anyone actually talk about inerrancy of Scripture? Well, uh, I, I had thought about doing um, a series, you know, the authority, the inerrancy, the sufficiency. We've talked about sufficiency certainly before, um, but it kind of started with a uh, tweet that I made. And, and let me just read the tweet. It, I, I just, you know, I, I popped on, I was, uh, I'm actually taking a couple guys in our church through systematic theology, so I've been thinking about these things, and I said, the inerrancy of Scripture is vitally important. To claim errors in the Bibles, to claim something is above Scripture as the standard for authority. To disbelieve the Bible is to disbelieve God, and to accuse the Bible of error is to accuse God of error. Um Pretty simple statement, you know, nothing difficult to understand. Um, The Bible is the word of God. If you attack, you know, God's word, you, in essence, attack God. We understand all those things. But the comments 
some of them are almost unbelievable. Um, and so that's really kind of what prompted uh, this particular podcast. So, uh, uh, brother, let's just talk about what, what it, we've given a definition, uh, but kind of flesh that out a little bit. When we talk about the Bible being inerrant, what, what does that mean? Uh, why does it matter that the everyday Christian believes and understands the Bible is inerrant? Yeah, the, the, the Bible is inerrant, as I mentioned, it's without error, and, and that, is, that is critical. And I do believe that ties back to our understanding of God himself and his attributes, because if we believe that God um, himself is perfect in all that he says, and we also believe that he is sovereign, um, he is in control of all things, that he knows all things even before they have happened, he has ordained all things. And so, we have to wrestle with the fact that um, if we say that the Bible has errors, then what does that say about God and his character um, mm-hmm. when we think of him as being all wise, all knowing, even before the foundation of the world, he existed outside of time. Time is a creation of his. And so I, I think this traces a lot of this traces back to our understanding of the attributes of God. But if we compromise on the inerrancy of scripture, um, what are we doing? We're we're basically now opening the door and and this you know, people often use the term slippery slope, and, and I think a lot of people use it prematurely or in areas where it doesn't really apply, but I do believe in this area it really does apply. You open the door to a slippery slope where you start to say, well, if the Bible is not inerrant, meaning if the Bible indeed has, has errors, then now it becomes the, um, the decision of each interpreter to determine where those errors are. And now you can start to pick and choose. And we already know that from the heart of man, when they approach the text, they start to pick and choose the theology they like, and they start to reject the theology that they don't like, claiming that it it is errant. Well, now we're back to the time of the judges where everyone did what is right in, in his own eyes because it just as the saying goes um i can i can i can um i can make any scripture say whatever i want to say as long as i take it out of context similarly i can make any i can make the scripture say whatever i want to say if i'm allowed to just pick and choose what is errant and what is inerrant and so it, it basically opens up too much uh to to man and and i believe it also undermines uh, what we know to be be true of god yeah, that's a good point, brother. And I think, it, it, you know, I would just simply make the statement that the only reason for denying um, the inerrancy of Scripture is because you want to make the Bible say what you want to make it say. Uh, but that that's just it. Um, you know, like like you've said, and, and we'll talk a little bit about that because um, always, always, and, and if anyone can prove me wrong, you send me an email. Um, but uh, the moment someone denies the inerrancy, I can guarantee you they'll deny especially some things written by the Apostle Paul. Guarantee it. Um, and it's uncanny how that is almost always part of it. But if not the Apostle Paul, um, then they'll deny other historical facts, maybe creation or something like that. Um, but there will always be, in the person who denies inerrancy, a rejection of some truth that's in Scripture. Um, and, and so, just to prove the point that the reason one would reject the inerrancy is because you don't want to believe something the Bible says. Um, but it, it, let's take a little bit of time and, and maybe try to help work through some of these objections because there may you know genuinely be uh, a lot of people who one who've just not ever really thought about uh, the bible being inerrant you know it's probably not terminology we hear a lot today and so that's understandable um there may even be well-meaning christians who just aren't aren't sure and they aren't convinced um and it's not an issue of not wanting to believe the bible uh, they just don't know right and they have genuine questions and then of course we have that other group yeah. of people who basically want their own religion they just want to call it christianity and so they they use the parts of the bible they like and they throw out the parts they don't like um and so we kind of have all these groups of people but i think one thing that's important to say uh, to start with is the fact that scripture itself claims to be the word of God, um, right? And so this is a good starting point. Uh, you go to First um, Timothy, no, sorry, Second uh, Timothy uh, chapter three, right? Second Timothy chapter three, where we're told that the word right. is God breathed, um, and, and so there's a lot of implications yeah. from that. And, and you've already referenced that since scripture is God breathed meaning the very word of God, um, to say that it contains error would be to imply that God has in some way erred himself, 
Well, then you've just attacked the character of God, right? Scripture also tells us that God can't lie. Uh, you see that in Titus, you see it in Hebrews, you see it in Second Samuel. Um, and so, we put all those things together, and even just those few things would make it very difficult to come to the conclusion that there's error in Scripture. Yes, correct. And, uh, you know, the, the other angle to this, too, and, and I do run into this sometimes as well. Um, first of all, if someone denies a portion of Scripture, I, I agree with your observations. It's typically, in just about every case that I can think of, there, there's theology that someone's trying to read into the text, or there's theology that they're trying to reject. And um, and, and I would just say for, for people, when you come across someone who makes this claim that, um, that that Scripture is not inerrant, there are errors there, um, I wouldn't immediately jump to conclusions, but rather just listen to what the person has to say, but recognize that there's typically um, a motive behind it, and, and it'll get revealed when you um, actually talk through those things. But to your point, the, the scriptures do claim to be the, the word of God. Uh, the Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17, um, all scripture is inspired, and the word for inspired in the Greek, it's a compound word, uh, literally God-breathed, as you mentioned, theopanoustos. Um, it's breathed out by God and profitable um, for the man of God to be equipped for every good work, and, and obviously for rebuking, teaching, training, and all those kinds of things. So, we, we understand that the Word of God claims to be the Word of God, um, but the other aspect to this, too, is that sometimes people will inject the whole um, interpretation process or translation process that you can't, okay, fine, the original um, autographs uh, were inerrant, um, but all we have are manuscripts, and you can't be sure that the manuscripts mm -hmm. that we have, because they, they've been interpreted multiple times and this and that, there, there's a lot of um, misconceptions about how we have what we have, and obviously, See if you were to pick up, for instance, the New American Standard and, com and compare it to the King James or the New International Version, you're going to see differences in the way things are worded. Um, but the translation process um, has actually um, is actually not an issue. Um, because if you start to figure out what it is that people say is errant, you'll find that this has nothing to do with translation. Mm -hmm. This has nothing, it has everything to do with uh, with with uh, what people want to read into there. And it's not even about the, the passage itself. And there are other times where people will read in cultural influences uh, when something is meant to be understood universally. That is often mm -hmm. the case with uh, Paul's uh, message to, to women, how they are to, um, they are not to speak up during service and, and they are to only um, teach other women or, or children. Um, often that's uh, made into a cultural reference. Um, but yeah, if we start off just with the simple fact that the Word of God claims to be the Word of God, that, that even Paul, and Paul is writing 2 Timothy, that's like the last letter that he has to write. And, and by that time, a lot of the New Testament had been written. There's still others that need to be written, but the, I'd say the majority of the New Testament had already been written by the time he writes that letter to, uh, to, to Timothy. Uh, that's a significant statement. And, and I believe that he understood that his words, um, may, he may not have always understood every single letter which was going to be in or out, but he understood that as an apostle of Christ, he had the authority to bring forth the word of God. And I do believe that he understood that his writings um, were being added to scripture. Peter certainly understood that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we understand what the word of God claims and, uh, and, and the common objections um, really don't stack up when you start to discover the rationale behind why people make these claims. Yeah, you, you brought up um, kind of the objection that we don't have any, uh, we don't have the original manuscripts. And, and, and it, that's, you know, in, in my mind, that's an acceptable question, right? Um, but I, I think we need to realize that we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of manuscripts. Um, and for over 99% of words in our Bible, there is no question as to what should be there. I mean, we have that many copies of copies of copies that are consistent. Um, th there is almost uh, amongst, you know, honest theologians and ling you know, the, the linguists, no question as to what should be in our Bibles. And, and that, so, that's good to know, right? Um, yeah. And it's interesting, I, I at one stage, uh, I, I remember teaching a canonization history class at, at a local college, and um, we talked about the fact that we have I don't know, it was like two or 300 manuscripts for the Iliad or the Odyssey. 
Um, and we take that as, yeah, this is absolutely his writing or right, right. his work. Um, and we have thousands, tens of thousands of copies from all over of scripture. And there's still somehow some question uh, about that. So that's a good point. Mm -hmm. um, but we have so many uh, that there really just is no question. Um, and so oftentimes people will, yeah, they'll dig down into uh, mostly it's misunderstanding um, things in the text, a spelling error uh, or something like that, or common usage of the day. Um, we use words a little differently sometimes than the language that was used in Scripture, uh, but that's just a definition, yeah. understanding what the words are. That's not an error in Scripture. Um, and so, it, you know, for most questions, in fact, um, I don't personally know of any major questions among solid theologians that haven't been answered. There are very few difficult things. Uh, there are a couple, um, but even those don't leave us with wondering what is, should be in Scripture. Right. Yeah, and, and I think about um, also people will point out supposed contradictions or things that didn't make sense in history. And, and I would just say that um, archaeology, not that we need archaeology, we don't need uh, fossil, fossilized evidence, but archaeology has revealed a lot of what had previously been debated in Scripture to actually be true to Scripture. And just as an example, I've been uh, preaching through the book of John, and in John chapter 5, we have the healing at Beth Bethesda. And we, we have the, the pool uh, of Siloam. This is where the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the crippled uh, man is uh, sitting beside a pool, and it's being described as having five porticos. Well, what are porticos? Porticos are basically these, um, these, these, uh, these roofed over kind of um, walkways. And uh, the fact that there is five porticos, people would look at this and say, well, this can't be literal because there is no historical evidence for there ever being a five-sided pool. Um, pools were always uh, four sides instead of five sides. And so they would say, well, this, this must be um, either allegory or just a, a false uh, a witness from, from the Apostle John as he's writing this. And so Christians at that time would turn this into an allegory, this little story about this man being, uh, being healed. He, he was ill for 38 years. Um, and then it was discovered much later that they did discover a pool. Indeed, it did have five porches or porticos or walking areas, and, and it was not five-sided. It was actually a four-sided pool, but it was split in half. And so you had the four that uh, you had the four which covered each of the four sides, and then one right down the middle. Uh, why do I bring up that story? I bring up that story to show this. It is so much easier just to believe that scripture is true mm -hmm. than to make all these arguments for why it must be false, only to be proven, uh, you know, to be proven wrong later by archaeological evidence. Now, did we need archaeology to know that the word of God is truly the word of God? For the believer, we shouldn't. Um, and it's yeah. just so much easier that when we see things that appear to be contradictions or we see things that seem to be culturally off or uh, unable to be um, substantiated by history, um, archaeology has proven time and time again that a lot of these statements actually were historically true. And so for the Christian who just simply believes what the Word of God says, you'll always be in a better better position than the naysayers and the scoffers who continually question and attack uh, whether the Word of God is true or not. Yeah, and uh, great points, brother. And I'm just thinking, he, here's you mentioned a, a fundamental problem with how we gauge whether or not a scripture true. If you're using any other source to confirm the accuracy of scripture, that source, in your example, archaeology, has actually become the authority above scripture because you're saying, right, I'm, I'm going to archaeologists who have now confirmed scripture, therefore I'm, I can believe it now. That's to say archaeology is more authoritative. That's your absolute source of truth. Um, and so we have to be careful anytime we look to other things to prove Scripture. Now, um, we understand that, uh, you know, our human sciences, uh, you know, whether it be natural sciences or archaeological or whatever, um, if they're true and they're accurate, their discoveries will never will we'll never conflict with scripture, right? And so, as we go along, we'll probably discover more things um, uh, that scripture tells us. And that should, um, it, it, in some ways, it should be encouragement not to prove that God's word is true, um, but it's just one more uh, stumbling block for the world um, that, that's out of the way. But I don't need archaeology to prove that scripture is true. In fact, I know um, that if science is right and accurate, it will always 
prove the Bible to be right um, in those areas to which the Bible speaks to that it's discovered. So, um, if we ever get, uh, well, I think carbon dating is sort of, now we all know that carbon dating is inaccurate, just as a, uh, an interesting aside, right? Um, right. Some, some time back, for instance, uh, the creation, uh, you, you can follow enough time frame uh, from Genesis to where we are today to know that the world is not millions of years old. And yet, with the invention of carbon dating, there was a lot of question about that. Well, now, right, as true science, um, which is always based on hypotheses and theories, um, it, it, when true science develops the way it should, now now even in that world, we understand that uh, carbon dating is not very accurate. And so, I think you now there's some um, radioactive dating. I can't remember the, the, the exact term there. Um, but eventually, um, if that science of dating the world were ever to become accurate, it would very simply just demonstrate that what the scripture says is true, right? That the earth isn't millions of years old. It's just several thousands of years old. Um, but we shouldn't be looking to those things as though they're the authority. Um, and so, scripture is true, and anytime science or our discoveries right. Uh, uncover that reality. We just simply rejoice, uh, but we rejoice having already known that to be true. Yeah, exactly. We we trust what the Word of God says because it came from God. And by the way, just quick correction: I mentioned John five in that pool. I think I mentioned it as the pool of Siloam. That's not the pool of Siloam. Just just a correction. That may be a, a different pool, but it was still the pool with five porticos that was uh, later to be discovered to be true. But I, I think of also the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. Right, so yeah. the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the mid 1900s, and um, a lot of people had questioned the whole transmission process of how we have the scriptures that we can't possibly know it to be accurate, and especially the Old Testament and the prophecies of Christ. Um, there were a lot of accusations that we have turned those prophecies in the Old Testament to be more um, to, to be modified so that it, it looks like it's pointing to Jesus Christ when it really isn't. Um, well, the Dead Sea Scrolls helped to put that to rest uh, as they discovered uh, many scrolls of the Old Testament that predated uh, Christ. And as they looked at uh, the translations that were there, they had um, fragments of every single book except for two. I think it was, um, I want to say it was Esther and Ruth that were the only two that were missing. And they had the book of um, Isaiah almost in its entirety. And Isaiah, by the way, of all the prophetic books, Isaiah says the most about the coming Messiah, the suffering servant and, and the promises of God. And, and the book of Isaiah was uh, essentially a, a perfect match for the uh, mm -hmm. translation that we have today. Again, one of those examples, just as you said, we don't need um, archaeology in order to believe the Bible. We, we believe the Bible because we understand that it came from a perfect source. And so, if you just believe the Bible, as you said, you know, these discoveries that, that come up, um, they can serve as a useful apologetic uh, to be able to defend uh, the faith to say, look, these things were discovered um, later on. But there are many other examples aside from that. And again, the person who just simply believes that God's word is God's word um, will be far better off than the scoffer or the skeptic who mm -hmm. continues to question things in which there is no direct proof. And uh, a saying from one of my professors is worth mentioning here when it comes to archaeological evidence, in absence of evidence is not the same thing as evidence of absence. And what do I mean by that? Some people will say that they have found no evidence for certain historical cities or, or things that have happened. Well, there is not always remaining evidence um, of things that have happened. Um, but just because you can't find evidence, that's not um, evidence that it never happened, right? So, um, mm -hmm. so that we, we know those truths to be true about uh, archaeology, but it's so much simpler for the person to just believe what it says. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, arguments like that are, I, I think we just don't think through them very well. Um, they're not good arguments because, well, it, you know, just, just consider this. Every year, and this is something I like to do, um, we, they, uh, science, uh, several magazines will publish um, a list of all the new species of animals that they've discovered in the previous year. Every year, every yeah. single year, we discover different species that we never knew existed and have been with us all this time. Well, we can't say that uh, they didn't exist until you discovered them, right? And, and there are constant new discoveries right. being right. made. And so, yeah, to say we don't have any proof of it, therefore it doesn't exist, is really kind of a foolish argument. Um, at, at, at the least, it's a poorly thought through argument. Uh, but, you know, another major 
major problem with denying the inerrancy of Scripture for the believer, especially, or the professing believer, is if you deny the inerrancy of Scripture, then how do you decide what is or isn't accurate in the Bible? Right. Right. What good is the Bible to the person who says, I don't know what is or what isn't accurate in here? Yeah, and I remember, um, I, I want to say it was in the 70s or 80s, there was um, kind of this movement called the, the, the Search for the Historical Jesus or something uh, similar to that effect. And they brought together um, biblical scholars together, and they produced, and I was just reminded this from another uh, pastor recently, they produced what is referred to as the Rainbow Bible. And, and the Rainbow Bible is not, uh, has nothing to do with LGBTQ or that movement, but the Rainbow Bible uh, essentially took the, the words in the Gospels and had them color-coded based upon um, the percentage of certainty that Jesus actually said those things. And the way they determined this was not based upon any real evidence. It was a bunch of scholars in a room, and they went through um, each of the words of Jesus Christ, and they asked them to vote, how likely do you think it was that Jesus actually said this? And if they all raised their hand, then it received a certain color that showed that this is 100% certain. If no one raised their hand, then it received another color. And anywhere in between, there was a gamut of colors that they went through to be able to show what is the percentage of certainty do we have that Jesus actually said these things? Well, that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, Because when we look through the gospel accounts and the words of Jesus, we can be 100% sure that what we have there are the words uh, of Jesus Christ. And uh, again, all the manuscript evidence that we have shows us uh, what it is that we can be certain of. There are certain uh, portions of scripture that we're convinced now that um, didn't belong there or weren't actually included there. Um, But the portions that are certain just through the science of of, uh, comparing all these manuscripts together and doing all the dating, um, we can be certain that that is all from Christ. But when you have these experts coming together and voting, um, what are they doing? Well, they're just doing it based upon their own subjective feelings. There's no real evidence involved in there. They're just rejecting what they think couldn't have come from Christ and what should have come from Christ. And really, we're making a Christ uh, of our own making rather than allowing the scriptures to speak for themselves. Yeah, that's a frightening thing. Now, is that the same time period? There was a, a statement that uh, came out that was really combating the attack on inerrancy, the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy. Do you remember is that the same time frame? Yeah, I believe I believe it would have been right around that same period. Yes, I believe it is. If I can yeah. look that up. So, um, you know, folks, you can, you can go look that up. I mean, this isn't the first battle we've had. Uh, the church has has had over these things. But, it, you know, and so if once you start questioning whether or not your Bible is accurate, I, I mean, truly, then the reasonable next question is, well, then how do I know what to follow, what not to follow? Um, what, what, what if the gospel in my Bible isn't quite the real gospel? Well, then that means you can't even be assured of your salvation. Um, what if, you know, the Apostle Paul's writings aren't accurate? What if uh, Peter's writings aren't accurate? And so, you know, once you decide, and emphasis on you, um, once you decide that the Bible is inaccurate, effectively, you have to assume the role of absolute authority because you have to pick and choose what is and what isn't true. Um, And so, in that way, you really usurp the throne of God. Exactly. And I I think about, again, going back to the book of John, I've been teaching through it. John chapter 6 is a pivotal chapter in in the book of John, because in that chapter, you start off with um, the feeding of the 5,000, which was closer to 20,000 people that were following Jesus Christ because of his signs and miracles. And then by the end of the chapter, you're really left with Jesus and the 12 disciples. And uh, they, uh, many of his other disciples and those who the, the 20,000 were talking about, we're not talking about the Jewish leaders that were trying to kill him. That shows up in chapter five, but that's in Jerusalem. In chapter six, these are locals in, around the area of Galilee um, who are following Jesus. And then they stopped following him because of the words of Jesus Christ. They couldn't accept it. And so then they ended up walking away. So we see even in history, the people that were there a lot of them rejected Jesus Christ because they could not accept his words. And that's exactly what's happening today when people start to pick and choose what they want to believe and don't want to believe is because a lot of people don't want to accept the words uh, of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And to that earlier question, so there is a 
um, the, the, what's called the, the quest for the historical Jesus. And, and this happened throughout the 1900s. There was a few different waves, but um, it, it plateaued in the 1970s, um, continued into the 80s, but the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy happened in 1978. So I do okay. believe yeah. that um, one was in response uh, to the other for that exact, uh, exact reason. But you're right. When you come to the text and start to pick and choose, what are you starting with? You're starting with, in your mind, what God should be. And then you are basically choosing what is consistent with your own view of what God should be, and you're rejecting anything that Mm. is not in view of what God should be. Well, that's exactly what happened in John chapter 6 when people rejected him. They they were upset that Jesus would not uh, allow to be made into the king, to a political ruler. They were upset that he was not producing a direct sign from heaven as they had wanted that led into his discourse about being the bread of the, the bread of life from heaven. Um, they they rejected his statements that you must eat the flesh and drink the blood, um, and and they rejected him when he continued to insist that hey you know what you don't believe because God the Father has not drawn you everyone who God the Father draws I will raise up on the last day so Jesus made no apologies for their lack of understanding for um, for their uh, disappointments uh, and all that and finally he turns to Peter. He says, you do not want to go also, um, do you? And he says that to the 12. Peter's the one that responds, Lord, you're the one with the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Um, We have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. Um, So Peter, in that moment, though he was rebuked because Jesus said, did I not choose you? But Peter, in that moment, understood that the words of eternal life were coming from Jesus, even though people rejected it. And that's exactly what's happening today with people that pick and choose what they want to believe from the scriptures. Yeah, there is no way you could ever convince me that someone who is born again and dwelt by the Holy Spirit of God can just reject entire portions of Scripture. You just can't do it. Um, it, To to do that is to reject God's Word. Now, you can have genuine questions about things. You can uh, be confused. You cannot understand. You know, there are reasonable but to just say, we're going to do away with the Apostle Paul or Peter or whatever, um, you'll never convince me that those people are truly born again. Um, and, and it, you know, here's another interesting thing. We talk about, you know, our really what you mentioned there was elevating our minds to, uh, you know, a higher standard of truth than God. And if we just sit back and think about the consequences of how we believe uh, the inerrancy of scripture, it can be kind of frightening. Um, I mean, what human wants to put himself in a position to judge the God of the universe? Uh, because that's effectively what we do, right? Uh, might not be our, our intentions, um, but a lot of well-intentioned people will spend right. eternity in hell, for instance. Um, good intentions doesn't abdicate us from tremendous sin, uh, and certainly um, making our own minds a higher authority of Scripture w- would be just one of those things. Now, it, here's something that I have heard on multiple occasions, and I don't know if you've ever heard this or not before, um, but it's, well, you know, the way you're talking about the Bible, uh, Eki, that sounds idolatrous. In fact, I've had that said to me, but I've heard things similar to that before. How how do you answer that question? You're just, you elevate the Bible too high. That seems like idolatry. I want to follow God. Yeah, the, the, the word that um, sometimes is brought up is bibliolatry, um, this idea that uh, you worship, um, you know, the word over God. And, and some have used the example of um, Jesus uh, telling the, uh, the Pharisees that you, um, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is these that testify about me. And they'll use that as an example of, um, of, of idolizing the word. Well, I would say that's an example of misunderstanding the word. Um, not understanding that all the scriptures uh, point to Jesus Christ, but for those who will accuse us of idolatry, you know, m- making the Bible into an idol, um, I-, I would say that there is no way that you can separate the true God from his word. He reveals um, himself to us through his word. And in fact, uh, once again, going back through uh, John chapter uh, five and, and six, uh, Jesus Christ makes uh, several statements where he says that if you believe in God, you believe in my word. And if you believe in me, you believe in God's mm-hmm. word. And uh, even in the book of Luke, he, he says, um, those of you who reject me and my word um, are, are going to face judgment. 
And so Jesus Christ did not uh, make this false dichotomy between the two. He put them together. And even when he was tempted by Satan, he said, man shall not live on bread alone, but upon every uh, word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Um, so th- there is nothing in the Bible um, that reduces or, or, or accuses someone of placing the Bible at too high of a level. I don't think that's possible. You um, you can't know the God of the Word without knowing the Word of God. So, they're tightly connected together. I, I think that's the testimony all throughout Scripture. When Paul says that the Word of God is breathed out, when Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for all the things that the man of God needs to do, um, we are to take him at face value. And so, typically, when people say that we are um, uh, worshiping the the Word of God, it's because they don't want to. And again, I wouldn't jump to this conclusion right away, but that has always been the case as I flesh it out. It's it's because there's something in the Scriptures that they don't want to accept. Yeah, and you know, I think it's important to say when, especially for me, when we make when I make a very black and white statement like you know, if you reject large portions of Scripture, you're probably just not a Christian. Uh, I I do mean that, and I don't think you could prove me wrong. However, um, I I don't think that that means we need to be combative in conversations with those people, right? When I come across uh, those people, you know, what I want is my my heart to really grieve because I I don't think that they are in Christ. Um, And right, and so I'm willing to have those conversations that we'll just throw that out there. Um, Sometimes I think in the the media world, we're drawn towards being very combative, and that's really not the purpose of having even these conversations. Um, But I I mean, that's that's a really good point, brother. It's sort of like, just imagine if you lived in a uh, monarchy and the king writes a letter to be read out loud in the public square. And so the messenger goes out, he reads the letter, and you say, well, I'm not doing that. Okay, well, you've just defied the king. Um, Not personally, you didn't even get to see the king, but because you rejected his words in his communication to you, you've rejected the king. Um, we, we would all understand that, right? If you question yeah. the words of the messenger reading the letter from the king, you are questioning the king. Uh, people were killed for that sort of thing in history past. Um, and so, that you're not worshiping the king's letter. You just understand that the letter is is I mean, in some ways, it's just a metonym for the king, and and scripture is the same way, right? The Bible is the very word of God, and so we worship the God of the Bible, but there is nothing that we should hold in higher esteem than the Bible because it is his written word to us, um, and so there's no other human author that touches yeah the authorship of the Bible. There's no other work that is more authoritative than the Bible. And if we ever had to choose between believing something and the Bible or living uh, for something or the Bible, we'll always choose the Bible because it's the very word of God. Um, You know, it's sort of like if, if God were to appear to to someone today, which he could if he wanted to, but he doesn't do that normatively, uh, normally. But if he would, if he did, and he told you to do X, Y, Z, hypothetical, um, if you obeyed that X, Y, Z, you wouldn't then be accused of idolizing whatever. Well, the Bible's that same thing. In fact, it's even more sure, right? I mean, it's interesting. The apostles who saw uh, Christ being transfigured go on to say, after they've seen all the miracles, after they walk with God, after they, I mean, they experience things that in our flesh, we yearn to experience because we don't understand how good uh, we have it in the Bible. Those apostles go on to say, we have now even something more sure and what's more sure than seeing the miracles of Jesus, seeing him transfigured, seeing, walking with him for three years? Well, they say it's the written word. Right. Um, and that is, I, I mean, that yeah. should yeah, be that's, astounding. Um, oh, amen. That, and that comes out of Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Uh, Peter is talking about the transfiguration, describes it, how we even heard the voice of God the Father from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
Uh, and I have argued when I preached that transfiguration account, I've argued that, that this was the greatest single experience that anyone could ever see going up to the Mount of Transfiguration and seeing the glory of God shine right from the face of Jesus Christ. And uh, to, to see that God, Jesus Christ have that visible, visible manifestation that he indeed is God in human flesh. And uh, so Peter goes on to describe that saying, we were there, we were eyewitnesses, we saw it, we heard it. And then he goes on in Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 19 saying that we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention to uh, as to a light shining in a dark place. Now, I, I would also want to remind our audience that this is the modus operandi of Satan. Um, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, that's how he begins engaging the woman, how, how he engages Eve by asking, did God really say? And he goes on to say that you will not die. And at that point, he calls God a liar. And even in the temptation of Christ, you can find that in both Matthew 4 as well as Luke 4. What does Satan do? Satan takes God's word. And, and tries to twist it and distort it in order to make Jesus Christ do what Satan wants him to do. What does Jesus do? Jesus often answers back with a correct understanding of the word of God and responds back uh, with, with scripture. And so we see that is uh, Satan's modus operandi. And even <clears throat> at the end of Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 is when Peter talks about the writings of Paul and says that the ignorant and the unstable will distort it uh, to their own destruction, even though these things are, are hard to understand. So, this is the way Satan operates. He wants us to think that God's word is not really true or it's misunderstood or it should be interpreted uh, differently. Um, and and I want to address another point that you brought up, and I think this is very important. Um, you made a statement that um, those who are true believers are not going to just suddenly deny portions of scripture. And I agree completely. And for someone who's listening to that, that may sound like a very, very harsh statement. But the scriptures, all of the scriptures come to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, the, the Holy Spirit testifies to his own word. Now, that's not to say... And, and, uh, and you said this also, um, that, that I agree, that, that that's not to say that a believer can't have legitimate questions about the Bible, um, that, that a believer can't uh, wrestle with the text, because you should wrestle with the text. You, you should ask questions of it. Um, Christianity is not a cult where we're simply just indoctrinating you to accept whatever the preacher says. No, on the contrary, you should be able to look at the scriptures and be able to hold your pastor accountable for everything mm -hmm. that he teaches, whether the scriptures truly support it uh, to be able to discern whether the scriptures truly support what you're hearing or not. Mm -hmm. And so that is very important that believers, when you're struggling with the text, um, be honest with that struggle, um, engage with the text, ask questions of the text, wrestle with the text. Um, but what you want to be careful of is starting, starting to rip out entire portions of scripture that, where you say, well, I'm just going to reject the words of Paul, which a lot of people are doing, or yeah. I'm going to paint Peter as being a, um, as a false believer with a false gospel, which some very well-known seminary professors actually do. Um, and so these are real attacks on the church. And, and so you don't want to discourage questions, but you want to be careful about people arriving at the wrong interpretation, because there are times where, you know what, in scripture, we don't have all the answers to everything. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a lot easier just to say that, you know what, I don't know the answer to this, but I know God's word is true. And at some point, whether it's going to be here on earth or it's going to be when I'm in God's presence, I will finally come to understand why these portions of scripture, which look like they contradict, really don't contradict. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good point to reiterate and and reiterate again, you know, and it, it, the Apostle Paul speaks to that too, right? Um, he says the believers in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and then he goes on to explain why, and the reason was because the the believers in Berea, I mean, look, they, they recognize Paul as an apostle. Uh, he says they received their teaching with gladness, but then he goes on to say that afterwards they went and tested uh, right in in their scriptures that they had at the time to see whether the things or not Paul had said were true, and so here are you know believers in the apostle Paul's time who said, okay, yeah, we 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 see you you know you're an apostle. They there's no reason to believe they wouldn't have known of even miracles done by the hands of the apostle Paul, so they receive it. But then they say, but you know what? Let's go back to the word of God we have and make sure. Um, and so there are multiple things. One, Paul encouraging the testing, but two, um, isn't it very interesting that we see their confidence in the word that they have at that time too, right? They're testing an apostle 
by the written scripture yes. because it's the word of God. Um, and and yeah. so when we talk about inerrancy, you know, we're very simply understanding that there is no error in the Bible. It is truthful um, to everything it speaks to any historical fact, any doctrine, but that's not to say that we understand it perfectly because we don't, right? Uh, and, and we've made that right. point uh, very clear, but we can, we should never say that parts of scripture isn't true because the moment you do that, um, then y- you have to become the source of absolute truth because you have to decide what is and what isn't uh, is scriptural. Now, I, uh, this brings us up to an, another thing that we see all the time. I think the common thing today is to write off the Apostle Paul, right? Um, whom, by the way, wrote the majority of the New Testament texts. Uh, so, if you write the Apostle Paul, you've pretty much gotten rid of the majority of the New Testament. You're left with the Gospels and a few books. Um, and, uh, and, and in fact, let me just read um, a quote here from someone uh, that was commenting about uh, the topic of inerrancy. They said, except you elevate the words of Paul over the words of Jesus, understanding the Bible is to understand the context of the times in mm-hmm. which it's written. They go on to make some other things that don't really make a lot of sense. Um, but this is a common attack on the inerrancy of Scripture because they're separating a portion of scripture from being the very word of God, which the Bible claims, right? So the Bible claims it's the word of God, all of it. And so if you rip, if you take one author out, um, well, first that means you don't understand the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? The, The Bible is written by God through the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit through men, right? And so it is not the words of a man we're following. It's the inspired word of God, uh, who used men as agents to write. Um, God could have written it on his own. He did parts of it, right? Um, we have the Decalogue. That was written in God's own hand, so to speak, uh, at one stage. But that yeah. was rare, and that's the, I think that's all we have. Otherwise, he has used his prophets um, and, and men to write the scriptures. So, it's not that we're elevating Paul above Jesus or anyone else. Uh, it's just very simply that the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the word of God. And so everything found in um, the places where God used Paul is just as authoritative as Jesus speaking himself, because it's all from God. Amen. And, uh, and, and just a point of clarification, Paul, so we have 27 books of the New Testament. Um, Paul wrote uh, 13, so I believe it's just under half. If you count Hebrews, then it would be a majority, but it is close to half of uh, the New Testament. And uh, to your point, you know, and I, I heard this recently from someone else as well, that someone who was attacking the Christian faith said, well, everything you have in the New Testament, it all came from Paul. Well, no, it didn't. We've got, we've got 13 uh, letters written by Paul and, and the rest written by other people. And his argument was that no, but everyone had access to Paul's writing. So everything was inspired or everything was, you know, they borrowed basically from Paul's, uh, Paul's writings and Paul's works. And that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, we have Second Peter, where Peter, one of the original disciples, and Paul was not one of the original disciples, but Peter very much affirmed in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, that the writings of Paul was based upon wisdom given to him by God, and that people distorted the unstable, uh, the, the untaught and unstable distorted to their own destruction, just mm-hmm. as they do to the rest of Scripture. So, very much affirmed. And, and the other thing I would point out, too, we have to remember that the original audience of these letters were people that were alive during the times of the apostles and Jesus Christ, all right? If there were some gaping holes where one person mm-hmm. was manipulating the message or, or, or uh, letters were not truly coming from where they were saying they're coming from, um, that original audience would have known it. Um, they, yeah. they would have called it out. Um, that, that would have been a, a huge uh, point of, of contention from none other than the Jewish people themselves. But what you have from that period of time is that you, you really have silence from the Jewish community who had rejected uh, Christ because they couldn't argue over any mm-hmm. of the historical facts. And, and you actually have backup from the actual Roman historians, the historians who uh, wrote history for Caesar, people like yeah. Tacitus and, uh, and Josephus and, and Pliny the Younger. You know, so you, you've got yeah. all, these, um, all these 
proofs from outside the text. And then suddenly, 2,000 years later, we think that we suddenly know more than the people who originally uh, received these things. So, yeah, it, it is ridiculous, um, the, the attacks on, on Paul. Um, Paul was, um, he was called by Jesus. He was uh, blinded on the road to Damascus. And even the original apostles and disciples were very hesitant to accept Paul as an apostle. It had to be proven to them. And in one case, we, we have a guy named Ananias who was actually spoken to directly by Jesus saying that he has called Paul um, to be his apostle. We had Barnabas who had to bring Paul before the apostles. We had the Jerusalem Council uh, where Paul shared what happened on that first missionary journey. We have the church in Antioch. We have several witnesses to the works of Paul that he was not some renegade operating independently. And when you read from the letters of Paul, like the book of Romans, especially the book of Ephesians, but even any of his other letters, just, just look at how he weaves all of God's words together. I mean, it is perfect. And it's not because Paul was perfect, but because the Holy Spirit working within Paul was perfect. So there is perfect coherency and consistency throughout all the scriptures, even if we can't answer all of the, um, uh, that, uh, all of the questions that come up. But there's a perfect consistency um, in terms of the testimony of God, Jesus Christ, the gospel, um, and, and how God was working out his plan. And then after Paul dies, we get the writings of Peter, we get the writings of, of John, um, and, and all of that provides perfect testimony um, as well. So it's all consistent. And, and there's no there's no sense in actually denying Paul, who actually started off as a persecutor of the church and, and went from being a persecutor of the church to being willing to die just for the right to be able to bring the gospel to Gentile people whom Jewish people uh, tended to uh, be very condescending towards. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, and again, so Paul's writings are the word of God. And um, I mean, one little little issue in there that we'll just touch on as we wrap up, but people often say, well, what about where Paul says, I, but not the Lord? Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's a valid question. If someone's just reading that and they say, oh, well, he makes a clear distinction there. Well, Paul wasn't God. Um, and I don't know that he fully comprehended that everything he was writing was um, the way we would understand it to be, although he clearly understood his authority to direct the church because that's the whole letter, right? Um, yeah. He was directing the church. It's consistent with everything else um, that he's taught and said. And and so, th there is room, and, and, and we must understand that uh, these were human authors, right? Um, and, and so, we see that, and we see that, that I think that's the only place uh, in Paul, and, and if you, maybe you can pull that passage up, um, but I think he's talking about remaining celibate and getting married, if uh, I think that's the context of that one part there. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but the point is that um, e even in that one area, if there's just one place in Scripture where it isn't the Word of God, then the Word of God has lied because it's claimed that it is all brought about by the yeah. Word of God. Um, and if Scripture can uh, lie in one area, then that means God has had to lie. At the very least, it means God is no longer sovereign. Uh, I mean, just these are just some of the implications of going down that rabbit trail, right? Um, and so, I think when we approach these difficult things, we need to approach it first with understanding that when we open the Bible, um, we are reading the very Word of God, and it is perfect, and it is accurate, and it is right, yeah. and that we do so as being imperfect people and not understanding perfectly or always rightly. And so, when we come to difficult passages, the question shouldn't be, is this true? Um, it's, how should I be understanding this? What information do I not have? Um, is, yeah. it, is there something in the grammar? Is there something in the history? Uh, is there something from my own, um, you know, just predisposition that I'm bringing and inserting into the text? But it shouldn't be. Uh, we should never assume the role of deciding whether God's word is true or not. Um, that, that we should stay away from. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've still got some questions about some things. I'm digging into the text, and I think every preacher, while they yeah. generally are firm on major doctrines, there are things that don't necessarily touch our faith that we still wrestle with. And that's just part of sanctification. It's part of being yeah. human. It's perfectly fine. Um, as long as we're approaching the text, understanding that this is 
the word of God. And that's why we elevate it, um, because it, it is itself elevated. And so, um, you know, and to make the Bible an idol would be, you know, I put my my physical paper Bible on a platform and I worship it. And I think that this book in and of itself is my savior and somehow um, redeemed me. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm worshiping that. No, I, I don't do that. It, you know, if my Bible, if the page in my Bible tears, I don't cry. Okay, well, I might if it's my really old one that I've had a long time now. Um, but it, if the page tears, it's, it's yeah. in that sense, it's just a book. I can replace it. Right, it's the words um, in this bound book that we have that make up the Bible, that, which is God's very word. Uh, and so we have to approach it that way. We have to view it that way. If if you don't view the Bible as being the inerrant word of God, ultimately you will have no real assurance that your Christian walk is in fact a Christian walk because you won't know what's really Christian or right. not. Right. Yeah, that passage about the noble Bereans out of Acts chapter 17 that you mentioned, that's a powerful passage because those Bereans understood that the scriptures that they had, and that would have been the Old Testament scriptures, they understood that those scriptures were the gold standard of truth and and were called to do the same thing. And the passage you're talking about, it's out of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul makes a distinction between what came from the Lord and what comes from him rather than the Lord. Um, I, I think a very simple explanation for that is this, that there were direct things that he heard directly from Jesus Christ. And there were things that he said um, through the power of the Holy Spirit um, that came from the Spirit, uh, came from his understanding of um, other principles coming together. And he is speaking with authority um, mm-hmm. here. And uh, he would go on later uh, in First Corinthians, I believe, to remind them that I too have the Spirit of God um, in me. Um, so all of it uh, indeed came from God. But in that case, he's just distinguishing between what he specifically heard from Jesus Christ and what he is telling by the power of the Holy Spirit that is working within him. But um, there is no difference in the authority that he places upon the church uh, with, with regards to uh, those words. So, yeah, so we, we uh, again, all this um, can, can be um, reconciled together. And, and the other thing, too, I, I know there's always um, someone who's, who would be on our side that would understand that the Word of God is perfect, who will always point out that Jesus Christ is the Word. So we know that in John 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus Christ, His name is being being described as the Word of God. And, um, and, and indeed, I would affirm that Jesus is the Word, but we also need to make a distinction between calling Jesus the Word of God and the actual written Word of God that we have. It's not exactly the same thing. Because when Jesus Christ is, it says to Satan, man shall not live on bread alone, but upon every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And that when he te- says in the Great Commission that you are to make disciples of all the nations, which includes baptizing, but also teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Well, where do you get that? You get that from the word of mm-hmm. God. And Colossians 3.16, that says, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. That is making a clear distinction between Jesus Christ, the person, as well as mm-hmm. the words. We don't separate them in terms of saying that one exists uh, independently of the other, but we do understand that there is a person of Christ and the person of Christ has provided us his word and his word is given to us through the scriptures. Yeah. And I mean, we even have different words in the Greek uh, that we translate as word in the English, yeah. right? Graphe, logos. Um, yeah, logos and rhema. Yeah, there's... R- right, yeah, rhema, there we go. Yeah. And and so, yeah, so some of that, we, we understand that. And and I wouldn't deny that Jesus is a word either. It, it's right there. Um, but like you've said, that doesn't mean we can say, well, I follow Jesus and not the Bible. Uh, because in fact, if you follow Jesus, you you do follow right, the Bible. Right. In, in fact, in fact, we only know of Christ and his words um, and his works through the Bible. Um, and, and so, if you throw that out, then you, you no longer have special revelation. You no longer have that which is needed um, to, to be saved and to walk the Christian life, uh, because you can't be saved without knowing of Jesus Christ. Um, and you certainly can't walk the Christian life without, you know, um, adhering to the book that God gave us, which is the rule and standard uh, for our life here and gives us hope of what's to come in the future. So, all of the scripture is God-breathed from Genesis to Revelation. It is the very word of God to attack the scriptures is to attack the God of the scriptures because it is his word. Um, I don't really, do you have anything else uh, as we wrap up? 
brother to say? No, I, I, I think we've hit this from a number of different angles. I'm sure there's always something more that we could say, but, but, um, but yeah, I believe this has been a, a very thorough um, defense of the inerrancy of the Word of God. And inerrancy, um, as you study more about the inerrancy, you will find just how um, interwoven it is with both the sufficiency as well as the authority of Scripture. Yeah, amen. So, if guys are like, well, how can I read some more? Uh, you can. There, there are tons of good systematic theology books out there. I think Joel Beakey's got some. Um, there's a Biblical Doctrine uh, by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew. I think it's in there uh, as well. And so, there's a lot of good resources. Um, and you'll hear a lot of just these very same things in, in that section of the systematic theology books. But at the end of the day, um, it, 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 we've got to have something that we believe is God's absolute word, because if we don't have that, then there's nothing that you can be absolutely sure of, including your faith. Um, and so, we trust the Bible is what it says it is, um, and it says it is the word of God. And so, we, uh, we have trust in that, we believe in that. And I guess the last thing that we ought to say, actually, is even believing this requires faith, and that comes from God. Uh, and so, you know, if someone were out there and they were genuinely struggling with believing the Bible, they're not just combative towards it, then you know what? Pray that God would give you faith. And we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And one way um, to, to start believing that the Bible is what it says it is, is to be reading it, right? Um, the more we read the Bible, the more we'll experience God's power in that. Um, and it's not some kind of, um, well, it is a miraculous thing because it's a gift of faith, right? So, if you're struggling to believe your Bible, um, I, I, would, I would assume that you're probably not in your Bible enough. So, get in it. Make sure, as always, you're plugged into a healthy, biblical, local Bible teaching church, um, and pray that God would grant you the faith, uh, you know, grant you faith as you read and study His Word. Amen. All right, guys. Well, thank you for joining us for our very first podcast of the year 2022. Really, I, I didn't uh, plan on it, but I can't think of a better way to start the year um, than uh, lifting up the scriptures as the word of God, because that is what they are, um, and uh, pointing people to that. So, uh, thanks for joining us. And until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.